This is Stephanie Nelson, host of the Pivotal People podcast. We have great conversations with all kinds of interesting people who are making a difference in the world. Follow us and leave a review if you like this episode so that more people can find us. Thanks for listening. Well, I'd like to welcome Alan Roth to the Pivotal People podcast. And I want to tell you about Alan. Alan's a good friend of mine. He is a certified financial planner. He's a CPA. He's an MBA. For years, he has been helping people manage their financial portfolios. And the reason I invited him to speak with all of us is because he has a very unique approach to helping people. He is truly helping people, not trying to profit unfairly off of people. And the reason I say that is because I discovered Alan by reading an article in the Wall Street Journal. And the article was featuring him because he had such a unique approach to helping people with their finances. And I just wanted to get to know him. I reached out to him. I emailed him. He actually responded. And over the years, we have become friends. You're going to love him and you'll understand why I do too. So Alan, I'd love for you to talk to all of us about the approach I read that you have. You know, as a financial planner, what is your unique approach to helping people? Well, first of all, thank you. And it's a pleasure to be on this podcast. And you with Coupon Mom and our mutual friend, Clark Howard, it helps so many common people uh, make their money go further. So uh, what you do is far better than than what I do. (laughs) I don't think so, but I appreciate we're on the same team. Well, financial planning is more than investing, but I'm happy to go through my, my eight-word philosophy on, on what I think investing is. I think a number of people right now are probably experiencing some anxiety about what to do with their money and their savings. And when we experience anxiety, I tend to try to find an expert to help me. And so it might be people may be vulnerable to hiring financial experts who don't have their best interest in mind. And I'll tell you the reason why Alan's approach was so unique is that Alan doesn't charge a percentage commission to his clients. He doesn't charge a percentage of their portfolio, which is a traditional way and an acceptable way for financial planners to charge their clients. He simply charges an hourly rate like a bookkeeper would, like an accountant would. He takes your portfolio, he looks at it, he gives you sound advice, and he helps you understand the simplicity of it. And I find that so refreshing. Now, Alan is not on the podcast to get clients. I will tell you, the man has a long waiting list. So he was simply kind enough to come on. And for those of us who, plenty of us aren't hiring financial planners, but we'd like to have the advice of a financial planner, Alan has agreed to do that for us. So yes, one of the neat things is he makes investing simple. That's his whole idea is how simple can we make it? So Alan, I'll turn it back to you. We are going to talk about investing in eight words. What do you mean by that? In eight words, investing is minimizing expenses and emotions, maximizing diversification and discipline. Now, Now, let me go through and explain that. The research shows the more we pay in fees, whether it's to advisors, to funds, families, um, the, the investment vehicle, the lower our returns are, because whatever the market returns is what the average investor is going to get. 
and then you have to subtract the fees from that. So minimizing expenses is key, but one also has to minimize emotions. So the market is down now. That causes not just anxiety, but pain. And the human reaction to pain is to want to make it stop. So how do we make it stop? We panic and sell and go all to cash. Then the market recovers. We go back in the market. We buy high, sell low, and repeat till broke. So you know we, we've got to control our emotions, minimizing expenses and emotions. Next, maximizing diversification and discipline. Diversification is key. It ends up that over the last 95 years, 4% of the stocks drove the entire stock market. And it's not the same stocks. The average return for the other 96% is virtually zero, like a treasury bill. So to maximize the diversification, it's really simple. We can buy a total U.S. and a total international stock fund with fees as low as 0.03, 0.04% per year and own over 10,000 stocks across the globe. Luckily, no more Russian stocks. Last year, it would have included Russian stocks, but I'm glad they're out now. So that is really simple to maximize the diversification. You're guaranteed to own the companies that drive the market. You know, for instance, one year, I think it was 2020, Zoom was a top performer, and we're on Zoom right now. I didn't know what Zoom was, but yet my total stock index fund owned it. So... Next, we have to maximize the discipline, meaning that when stocks go down, not only do you really have to not panic and sell, but you've got to stick to that, that asset allocation. For instance, if you were 60% stocks and stocks plunged, like for example, in 2020, stocks lost 35% in 33 days between February 19th and March 23rd, you're out of tolerance, meaning that your stocks are now a smaller portion and you've got to buy to get back to that asset allocation. And by the way, that rebalancing, that discipline will probably never work as well as it did because 2020 when COVID hit was the shortest bear market in history. But humans are pretty predictable. You know, we, we get greedy and buy, we panic and sell. And if you can go the opposite direction, and bet on capitalism working, continuing, you know, the odds are pretty darn good. There's no guarantee, but the odds are pretty good. So minimize expenses, emotions, maximize diversification and discipline. It's simple. And, you, you know, I, I wrote a book when my son was eight years old and money didn't mean anything to him. So duh, of course you want to buy when it's on sale. The older we get, the more money means to us and the harder it is to, to stick to the plan. One of the things you mentioned is the expenses. Okay, so most people might not realize you're talking about index funds, index funds that have very low expenses because they're pretty much automated. You don't have a person making all the buy sell decisions, so you don't have that overhead cost. People might not realize I didn't realize earlier in my life when a stockbroker recommended a mutual fund that we bought, it turned out that mutual fund had about a 2% expense ratio. And he also got a commission from it. So let's just say, Alan, the average, let's say an average return, if you're lucky, let's say 8% a year. If you're spending 3% on expenses, you're down to five. 
versus that same 8% in the index fund is pretty much going to be 8%. And over how many years, 20, 30 years, that 3% differential is tons of money. Yeah, that compounding is is very important to, to keep those fees low and it grows faster and faster over time. But, uh, you know, the sad truth is in probably a good 96, 97% of portfolios I look at, performance has been worse than expenses would have predicted. And, you know, my industry is pretty brilliant, I've, I've got to say. When we get gasoline, you, you know, would, I don't know if gas hit $5 in uh, Georgia, but it, it did in a lot of places. Over six in California, you fill up the car and you're getting that feedback. It causes pain. But my profession is so brilliant to make those fees non-transparent so you don't see them. And if you don't see them, you don't react to them. Well, that's right. And there is something too, when we go to professionals and they advise us, we don't feel comfortable questioning them when they have far more letters behind their name than I do. And they're telling me that no, 2% 2 is the going rate for somebody of my caliber. And okay, so we pay our doctors, we pay our lawyers. Okay, that makes sense. And um, that was why your article grabbed me because you look at it so differently. You look at it as there's a couple of things you told us in the beginning, which was so helpful. When you are hiring a financial planner to go ahead and ask them how they are compensated. And in fact, every financial planner has to file a form with the IRS that discloses their sources of revenue. And it's perfectly appropriate to ask them to see that form. It's with the Securities and Exchange Commission and FINRA, the, the advisor check. But yeah, but even so, it doesn't really tell you how much you're you're paying. And you know, as you mentioned, every profession on earth, for the most part, is fee for service. Doctors, lawyers, accountants. You know, why should financial planning be any different? You know, that was that was my belief. Well, and the let's say, for example, a, a let's a wealth manager might charge two percent of your portfolio each year, even if it goes down. They're still taking 2% out, 2% out, 2% out. So anyway, I think that most of us are in the boat of having figured this stuff out ourselves. Fortunately, there's all kinds of great resources for us to read and learn. One great resource I need to tell everyone is Alan's website. It is called daretobedull.com. He writes a newsletter and uh, has great practical advice. He also writes lots of articles, and he appears in the media, national financial media, all the time. He loves to write. He loves to advise people like us, and I love it because it's all free advice. You referred to this. You wrote a book called How a Second Grader Beats Wall Street. Your son at the time was eight years old, Kevin, and the tagline is golden rules any investor can learn. What are some of the golden rules that, I mean, I love that, how a second grader Beats Wall Street. My brother actually had each of his three sons read that book. And if they read the book, he put $500 in a mutual fund for them. And they all read the book. I think that's a really good assignment for everyone. Get this book off Amazon, read it yourself, have your kids read it. If, if our kids could understand these simple concepts early in their life, how helpful would that be? So tell us, what are some of the golden rules any investor needs to know that you that Kevin shared in his book? We talked about one, which is 10 minus two equals eight. If the market earns 10% and you're paying a total of 2%, then on average, you're going to get 8%. So you've mentioned one, if you own the entire stock market, 
with a fee of 0.03%, you're going to do a whole lot better. Other ones are, you know, don't act silly when something is important. My son couldn't understand why people would sell the stocks when they're down and buy them again when the price is up. Uh, at eight years old, he's always he's he's learned to buy things when they're on sale. You know, other things like don't put all your eggs in one basket. We tend to pick parts of the market, whether it's tech that's hot right now or emerging markets when it was hot, and chase that, uh, chase past performance versus that diversification. So there's simple rules like that. And you know, one was don't pay taxes if you don't have to. Those index funds happen to be incredibly tax efficient. With other mutual funds, when they buy and sell stocks, you can get a 1099 that says, even though you didn't sell the fund, even though the fund went down, you owe taxes. So no, I'm, I'm not claiming he uh, uh, understood the tax code. I don't think anyone understands the <laughs> entire tax code by themselves. But uh, you know, simple things like that in, in the book. You know, don't play a game if you can't understand the rules. So there are lots of annuity products, insurance products. You know, if you uh, have a uh, disclosure statement that's uh, 433 pages, I can tell you don't even bother reading it because I promise you the attorneys and the actuaries didn't write it to protect you. They wrote it to protect themselves. So simple is almost always better. In fact, you know, if you're, and I would say, if you're looking for a financial planner, you know, trust them only enough to listen, but not so much to follow blindly. And if they're telling you an investment strategy that is so complex, walk away. Um, good. Yeah. Yeah. Ask questions. If they say this is sophisticated uh, only for accredited investors, uh, you know, those are warning signs. Walk away. I can remember years ago, a, a financial planner who was so darn smart. I wouldn't have questioned him. He recommended an investment for us. I remember saying to him, how does this fit in the whole you know, spectrum of risk? You know, And he said, it offers diversification. Well, that was a Ponzi scheme. It turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. And we lost all of it eventually because of class action suits. We did get all of it back. But my lesson was simply that. If it's too complicated to understand, and if the answer is as vague as this offers diversity, as you can imagine later, I learned, I hadn't met Alan yet, okay? Later, I learned that, yes, he did get a big commission off selling us that, you know, diversified investment. And I can't blame him. I mean, that's how his his business was set up. That's how his company was set up. This is the product we're selling this week. Everyone sell it really hard. But I think when we're talking about something as important as our financial security and our future and our kids' future, we can trust ourselves a little bit more. And as you said, ask the questions. And if we don't understand it, don't feel badly for not understanding it. We're not supposed to understand it. So if we did, we wouldn't buy it. (laughs) So walk away. I love that. Walk away from it. Don't buy anything you don't completely understand. In fact, don't buy anything you can't explain to any eight-year-old. And don't buy the, you know, technically, as a registered investment advisor, as a CFP, I'm obligated, you know, for fiduciary duty towards you. And that is a pile of crud, excuse my English there, (laughs) because the CFP board, the SEC FINRA doesn't enforce it. I've I've seen some so-called fiduciaries sell the ugliest things. 
And then look, I'll, I'll admit something. You know, I started this practice about 20 years ago, you know, after 20 years of corporate finance and, and living very frugally. So if I had started it at a point where I needed to send my kid to college, uh, put food on the table, pay the mortgage, I'm not sure that I wouldn't try to sell you one of those ugly products and think that I was a good person. That's right. That's right. So that's why, I mean, we can't necessarily blame people in that position, but we can at least be aware. You know, we are aware when we have a realtor, we know exactly the percentage that we're paying them. There's no, there's no hidden fee hidden in the mutual fund, hidden in the instrument that they're selling us because there isn't a line item that says agent commission. It's, it's hidden. So it is in the 433 page document probably, but yep. we're probably not, it's probably on page 431. No, it's actually on page 17, 45, uh, uh, 73. It, you, you have to add all these things together. I, I went through one, by the way, and, and the total fees were over 10%. Oh my goodness. Wow. Not only that, but the provider quote, gated redemptions, which is a fancy way of saying, no, you can't get your money back. I'm going to keep charging you 10%. So yeah, there's some ugly things. One of my favorite stories of yours. Can you tell the story about your dog? Oh, Max Tailwagger. (laughs) (laughs) Max Tailwagger. Listen to this. Yeah, In my office, you'll see a beautiful crystal plaque from the consumer, I forgot the name of it, Consumer Federation of America, something like that, uh, whose prestigious address is on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., for one of America's top financial planners. But it's not issued to me. It's issued to my dog, Max Tailwagger. What I wanted to do was show that some of these prestigious awards are just completely phony awards for sale. So I wrote about it. Uh, the commissioner of the Colorado Division of Securities got involved. Uh, they threatened a lawsuit. But uh, of course, what I was trying to do was expose, you know, some of these fake awards. So all you awards. had to do was apply for it and pay a fee and you got the award and it happened to be your dog. Exactly. Poor Max passed away last year. Oh, I am sorry. And he was such a good financial planner. He took away a lot of my clients, darn it. Oh, he would work for most phones. <laughs> I was reading an article you wrote recently, which hit home. It was talking about, all right, the reality is for people who are at retirement age or nearing retirement age, there's a little bit of ang- a lot of insecurity and anxiety about saying, wait, I thought I was going to be able to retire. But now the stock market is down and you know inflation is up. Groceries are higher, gas is higher. Maybe I'm not in a position to be able to retire. What do I do? And you had some really good, you know, some practical strategies. I've always liked the adages. It's not about how much money you make. It's about how much money you keep. So one of yours was, you know, have a flexible budget. You know, maybe you were planning on spending a certain amount of money on travel a year. Look at that category. Break it down into truly essential travel, like visiting your grandchildren, and optional travel, like you know, going to Europe and have a flexible budget so that it's more practical. Another one you talked about, which I really like, is the idea of not fully retiring. Maybe you get a part-time job and you're making some money, but importantly, if you're not 65, you'd also maybe get health insurance in a part-time job. 
have you been observing people, maybe clients of yours or just people you know, who had planned on retiring and now this whole scenario is changing that? Uh, you know, I've got to confess, most of my clients are, are extremely wealthy. Okay. So it doesn't impact their retirement at, at that degree. But another chapter in the book was don't bet your lunch money. So when you're close to retirement or in retirement and you have enough to live, uh, supporting your lifestyle is the primary goal. Passing it on to the kids is an important secondary goal, but the key word there is secondary. So take risk off the table if you don't need to take that risk, because it's not just probabilities, it's consequences of if the market falls 50, 60, 70%, you can't send the grandkids to college, you know, things like that. You've got to translate that into consequences. But the second part is, is what you said, things that can be done to mitigate the risk once you're in retirement. And you, you hit on one, which is, you know, come up with a budget and then figure out what's non-discretionary. Like you've got to pay taxes. You want to keep the home heated in the winter time. And then some things that are discretionary and non-discretionary, you, you hit one on travel. Like I'm going to see the grandkids no matter what, but I'm going to skip the trip to Europe. I'm going to eat out less. Probably the easiest way to save money, the most painless way is to buy a moderate car and keep it as long as it's safe for a decade or longer. So those are sorts of things that we can do to, uh, you know, decrease spending, buying things with coupons, incredibly important to save over time. Incredibly important, especially today. I'm writing a book now and the whole concept of the new way of couponing, everything is digital. It's amazing to me how much money is truly at your fingertips. Yeah. Just click on this and you're saving 10% on something you were going to buy already. Just click on this and you're, and they're making it so easy. I can't believe it. And there's no embarrassment in the line anymore because nobody knows you're using coupons. You're just, yep. you're just cashing it in at the register and no one even knows. Well, look, I have no stigma when I use a coupon. <laughs> I never have either. But apparently, I mean, I drove a Honda Accord, which I absolutely loved for 14 years. So I hear you on that. And it's not just about saving money. Well, though that was a big one. It's the no stress about the car getting a little ding on it. I could never get, every time my husband would try to get me to buy a new car, I thought the first time I get a ding on it, it's going to be a tense day at home. But no one cares about my 14-year-old Honda, which, by the way, was truly in perfect condition when we eventually um, let it go. Anyway, so oh, you did let that good. one go. I remember when you almost bought that BMW. Oh, uh, I, I think it was a B. It. I could not do it. As soon as the salesman showed me the 18 different seat adjustments for the front seat, I was like, I'm out of here. This is way too complicated. <laughs> but the car, not only the depreciation, but every time you buy or lease a car, you're paying sales tax. The registration is higher. The insurance is higher. I haven't had collision on my cars for many, many years because we have inexpensive cars. We have right. liability. We have umbrella because we, we want to insure for what we can't afford to lose. So That's yeah, right. cars. Car, I wrote a, uh, an article many, many years ago, The Millionaire's Car. and It was it compared two fictitious couples that lived across the street from each other. You know, one leased the Lexus every three years, the other bought the Ford and kept it for a decade or longer, assumed some growth and over, I think it was 30 years, the one couple had something like $1.6 million more than the other couple. 
Amazing. So, yeah. Amazing. That's that's right. So I will tell you, when I did buy a new car, I got another Honda. You know, right. You're just either a BMW person or you're not. And I just am not. If I if I showed up in a BMW, my friends would say, who are you? <laughs> I have a 10-year-old. BMWs. <laughs> I have a 10-year-old Chevy Volt that gets uh, well over... Uh, 250 miles per gallon. <laughs> you can see why he's my friend. Yes. Um, but by the way, you hit on one other thing. I'm a big believer in retiring slowly. And that is, number one, psychologically, it's hard to go from working 40, 50 hours a week to suddenly waking up and having nowhere to go. Right. Um, so working part-time, doing something that gives you you know, more satisfaction than, let's say, over your previous career, brings in some money brings in health insurance, possibly if you're not at Medicare age. And more importantly, you have less time to go out and spend money. I find that people that retire spend more money than when they were working because now they have more time to travel, more time to eat out, golf, things things that cost money. Or just wandering around stores buying stuff you don't need. To me, as I always see that as the big culprit. You know, do you need another dish towel? But anyway... That's we could talk about this all day. This is so much fun. Alan, my husband Dave is friends with Alan too. We're going to come see you in Colorado Springs this summer, by the way. So we have to coordinate that. But I just want to thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us and to share your stuff. I want to remind everyone this will be in the show notes, but you really want to go to dare to be dull.com. You want to order Alan's book on Amazon. It's a bargain, of course. It's called, you know, How a Second Grader Beats Wall Street. And you want to follow him on the articles he's written. He writes for Yahoo Finance. He writes for, is it still Market Watch? He writes for all kinds of big media outlets. He is a well-respected advisor. And as you can see, he's just a really nice guy. So thanks so much, Alan. I'm looking forward to seeing you in person soon. Me too, Stephanie. Thank you so much. Say hi to Dave. I will. Thanks for listening today. We hope you're inspired. And if you like the episode, please take a moment to go to your podcast platform and follow us and leave a review so more people can find us. Now go out and be the pivotal person that you are.